Till now, year two. Hello again, and welcome to the story up till now, year two. If you're just joining us and haven't heard all about the great adventures of our first year, our first story up till now episode is episode 120, published on February 3rd, 2019. You may want to listen to that to catch up on all the great story and all the happy hijinks to refresh your memory before you continue with all the hijinks of year two. Are you all caught up? Great then. Here is story up till now, year two. When we left our heroes last year, many things were up in the air. The party had just claimed the second phylactery from the frozen city in the waterfall. Although triumphant, there was a dark cloud still hanging over the party. Gernval, now known as Krival, had been healed and had his memory restored and become war leader for his people. However, in that restoration, he had lost his connection with Dynek and the lack of healing power had nearly finished the party in the fight in the frozen city. Now returned to the Dragonborn camp, he is confronted by his clan shaman, who instructs him to hold a vigil to find his spirit animal. He finds much more. In the wee hours of the night, he is visited not only by the animal, but by the god Nuwada, whom he worshipped as a warrior in the past. As he reconnects with his faith, a snow owl, the icon of his clan, flies out of the rising sun, to him. He returns to the party, a changed man. The party's quest in the mountains finished, they must now hurry home to Port of Magnum as Cotter's bride is waiting for his return. First, though, Creval must marry the reverend mother of his clan, who, unfortunately, is his sister. In a barbarian ceremony, they are joined before all the clan and their guests. Then it is a mad dash down the hill to Excalbarium Colise to catch the fast airship back to Port of Magnum and Cotter's wedding. This is a completely different affair than the wedding in the mountains, taking all day and full of much pomp and circumstance. At the climax of the ceremony, Cotter is installed as head of his family and the Lord of the Swans. Then the Baron of Porta Magnum himself knights him with a caveat that they must appear before him for a mission the next day. In the meanwhile, the Tabaxi are keeping busy. Galchabar has tasked them with finding an old spell book that he has a line on. They think that it might be in the summer palace in the mountains and the head off in that direction. As they cross the delta, though, they are jumped by Wan Tai and the fight is a very near affair. Escaping by the skin of their teeth, they make it to the summer palace. They find it buried in a fall of ice and realize it's the same city the main party just escaped from with the phylactery. They find the magic javelin the party left behind, but no spellbook, but perhaps hints to where it might be found. Back in Porta Magnum, the party learns that the Baron would like them to act as ambassadors to the neighboring barony of Faramans, Realm of the Dwarves. Resources are wearing thin, and the two baronies are the brick of war. Meanwhile, Creval and Cotter work out a deal with Sinia to trade food to the Dragonborn for furs to keep them fed in, in place in the mountains. Then the party heads to the fabled library of Porta Magnum, and then to the royal astrologer to try to get any answer or insight into the current peril. Both the librarian and the astrologer are interesting. Rejoining the Tabaxi, they journey to the middle of the Mare as clues they find lead them there to the buried city of Exodus. They burrow into the sands of the Mare only to find a pair of umber hulks that would like to make a meal of them. 
Defeating them, they discover a cache of documents that, while a great find for the Great Tabaxi Library, shed no light on the current quest. They must look elsewhere to complete the quest, and then decide that Fairy is the right place to check. They arrange with the elves to open the gate to Fairy, but find a giant corpse flower waiting on the other side. This nearly finishes them off, the cats only being saved by the timely arrival of the elven patrol sent to escort them. The main party hits the road in their new capacity as ambassadors to stem the tide of war before it begins. They find out that they are too late, though, as they come across the corpse-strewn landscape of a recent battlefield. Then they notice that there is a familiar red-robed figure raising the dead as an unliving army. They pursue the party into the spine of rock, the only defensible space around. There, the party throws everything they have at them, only to have the undead horde press forward undaunted. Then, with all looking bleak, Orlana... Arlen's apprentice, throws herself down the hill into a mass of undead and detonates, destroying the undead and nearly the party and leaving only a crater to signal her passing. Grieving her loss, the party presses forward, making contact with the dwarves and talking their way past the barricades. Not trusting the party, though, they escort them back to the Iron Mountain for an audience with the Baron. There they find their information to be true. He is refusing to treat with any half-elf, but Kraval and no one he will talk to. They make little progress in their talks, but the Baron commissions a feast all the same. Dwarven food, though, is fiery, and surviving the food is their first challenge. At the feast, the serving automatons, created by the gnomes, catch the party's attention. The Baron's cousin Nola offers to guide the party on a tour of the gnomish workshops the next day. The first stop is a garage of cars propelled by dire hamsters. They can't help but engage in a game of Mario Kart. They then commission the creation of a battle trainer for Noan, and then end up at the fabled dwarven Pepperfields. It is here that Nola reveals that she offered to act as guide to give the party a request. She wants them to kill her cousin, the Baron. Initially off-put by the thought of helping another cousin depose a Baron after being duped by Llewellyn at Excalbarium Colise in similar circumstances, the party is slowly brought around by her explanation that the person sitting on the throne is in fact not her cousin. He seems only peripherally aware of things that he should have intimate knowledge, and opponents to his rule have a habit of suddenly switching to his point of view for no apparent reason. They agree to confront him and depose him only if necessary. When they do corner the Baron in his throne room late at night, they find him waiting for the attack. Apparently, they weren't as clever as they thought. The guards rush to attack and the fight is on. It is at this point a strange thing happens. The Baron charms Arlen, and when he approaches, kisses him turning into a succubus instead. The kiss of death nearly finishes Arlen, who is able to retreat only with the help of the party. The guards cease their fight, and the succubus turns ethereal and escapes laughing through the walls. At this point, we return to the mountains and the dragonborn. They have set up trap lines to gather the piles of skins they will have to trade for food so as not to starve in the coming winter. Unfortunately, someone, or something, has been destroying their traps. They attempt to track the interloper and finally, after a day of hard work, find a bear stuck in their last trap surrounded by vultures waiting for it to die. It turns out that it is they who are the ones that are trapped, as animals turn into druids who assault and nearly kill them. They fend off this attack but are left with the mystery of why the druids would target them. Back in Faramons, the party has to convince the mob of dwarves that what they did was a good thing and for them not to tear them limb from limb. Getting a short reprieve, they must discover what happened to the real Baron to assuage the mob. 
They searched the baronial quarters only to find his remains and all the dwarven crown jewels stashed in a bag of holding. This throws the dwarves into a state of excited chaos. They select their leaders by a juried crafting competition. And now, all of the great master crafters will go head to head to see who will be the next baron. Nola enlists the aid of the party to help her and off they go. The first stop is the depths of the mine where they will gather the ore they will need for the project she has in mind. Unfortunately, the deepest parts of the mine are the haunts of trolls who would rather see the party becoming lunch. They nearly succeed as they gravely injure several party members before they can be overcome. There is little time to lick their wounds, though, as time is of the essence and the party struggles to the crafting chamber to assist Nola with her masterpiece. They pump the bellows, grind the stones, hammer and polish the metal, and in the end, she is declared the new baron on the strength of her masterwork. Things are finally looking up for a change when all the arcane crystals of the dwarves used to power their constructs disappear in one night. They begin the investigation into the disappearance when they find that Nola has gone missing as well. This threatens to throw the whole barony into chaos and undo all the good work the party has done. Frantically, trying to tie down all the pieces together, they find that the last person Nola visited was the High Tinker, the head of the gnomes. They investigate his home and find a secret entrance to a lair deep in the earth. This chamber is otherworldly, covered in strange rock shapes, and in the center, the Tinker, surrounded by writhing masses of flesh and mouths, apparently ready to sacrifice Nola in a strange altar. Despite the creatures being more buzzsaw than flesh, they destroy the aberrant creatures and chase the High Tinker off. They must now pursue him to the surface and stop whatever diabolical plan he has. Meanwhile, the Tabaxi have limped into the elven home of Fairy to research their quest. They find to their dismay that the elves have a small library in front of each and every home they inhabit, not one big one like the tabaxi. They will have to split up and research them all, and they spend the entire day led by elven children visiting every promising library looking for leads. This leads them to the fabled city of Ubrum Concordia. What will they find there? Back in Faramond's, the party reaches the surface only to find the true power of the High Tinker. He has abandoned technology for the power of the old gods and rides on a house-sized mass of writhing flesh and teeth. The party valiantly attempts to damage the beast, but it's too great. It destroys whole guard formations and sends them reeling in confusion. It is at this point that Oscar reappears with his battle wagons. The party jumps in and attacks with them, but the punny weapons he has equipped these experimental units with are hardly better than what the party could do themselves. Oscar commands the party to hit the red buttons that they had previously been forbidden to touch, and the wagons join together to form a great battle robot with a light sword. Unfortunately, the party finds that they somehow have put exactly the wrong personnel in each vehicle. It lurches awkwardly about the field, hardly damaging the Tinker's aberration, while all the time taking damage from it. Finally, they get the hang of it and turn the tide, and then Arlen leans out of his unit and sends a final fireball into the High Tinker's command compartment, destroying him and the beast. Then it was time for some R&R the next day. Not only was it time for Nola to be crowned baron, but also it turned out to be the Lunasa Festival, and the party decided to join in the festivities. They competed in various contests of skill and athletics and took home many medals. With the warm glow of success filling them, they took their leave of their new baron and began the journey home. This trip would not be without its own encounter, though. Very near the blasted clearing that marked the end of Orlana, the party camped and was visited in the night. First no one, then Adri, was visited by none other than Alowal himself. 
To each he gave the offer of becoming his apprentice and joining him in undeath for the reward of unlimited power. Adri just threw her tea into his face, at which point he disappeared. For no one, though, he found that another player had entered the field. Dianect himself appeared beside him and asked no one to join him instead. No one rejected both offers and told each he would chart his own course. Thank you very much. Returning to Porta Magnum in triumph, the party finds domestic problems waiting for them. Cotter's mother was chafing under the restrictions his wife put on the family finances, and Creval received a message that druids were attacking the hunters and his mate was driving everyone crazy. Although the party would rather continue on their quest, they would have to return to the heights and deal with the situation there. When they do arrive, they find things worse than they thought. The dragonborn aren't taking to the lowlanders' grain and their missionaries or the attacking druids. Creval must use all of his authority to keep the situation in check. Meanwhile, Nuan finds that he is the dragonling's favorite storyteller, and Arlen teaches the dragonborn to make tortillas. On the morrow, the party takes the druid captured in the initial raid, and she leads him into the mountains to negotiate with the druids there. She escapes, but is to arrange a parley with her order. The party sits down and begins negotiations with the druids, who are alarmed that the dragonborn are taking so much game and so many furs and are pushing the ecosystem out of whack. They cannot be convinced otherwise. The party keeps the negotiations going, though, and they finally come to an agreement where the druids will oversee the hunt to make sure it doesn't hurt the balance of nature. Just when it seems that they have triumphed, the head of the spore druids states that they can't agree, since a lowall wouldn't like it. It is then that they realize that the spore druids have been compromised. A fight breaks out, and the party has to defeat this new menace. The remaining druids of the other circles are devastated that someone of their own would turn against them, but they honor the new agreement with the dragonborn and pledge to spread the word of warning. It also confirms to the party that the fogs coming out of the mountains are in fact Alowal's work, and that he is behind all of the troubles besetting the land. One other thing of note happens as the party as they descend to the dragonborn camp. Everyone notices Cotter glancing about as they go, and he tells everyone he saw some glittery rocks on the way up. They join the search and find them and realize that it is a vein of gold showing at the surface. They contact Sinia to send word to Nola, as for sure the dwarves will want to know about this. Then it is time to return to the quest. The party heads down the hill and catches the next airship to Civitas Cataracta. They know that Porta Magnum Ambassador has cleared their names, but they enter in disguise anyways. And as they are not arrested the next day, they assume he was successful in his embassy. Then it is off down to Lowford, where the whole adventure began. They are shocked to see that half of the town has been burned down. The townspeople tell them a horde of zombies overran the village just after they left those months ago. The help they secured from the barony has blunted the damage and they thank the party for their help there. Then it is time for the party to leave, and since they are very near Arlen's family farm, they stop in for the afternoon. If you thought Arlen was cute and homey, you have seen nothing yet. His family is as wholesome and welcoming as you could hope for, and even his favorite cow is thriving. The only dark spot is that his older sister fell ill to something in the fogs and perished not too long ago. The party visits her grave on the way out of town and on the way back to the sea to find passage to the island in Turis, where they believe the next phylactery is. But their passage won't be that easy. As they enter the more tropical regions near where they encountered the black dragon last time, they encounter him again. This time he is a full adult, which makes no sense, as that should take hundreds of years of growth. But nonetheless, that is what they are up against. 
To make matters worse, it seems singularly out for revenge against Adri, who broke its nose and nearly killed it when it was a wormling. It chases her across the battlefield, damaging everyone and everything in its way, leveling Cotter and nearly no one in the process. It finally corners Adri in one terrible moment, lands on her with all its might, killing her. Then something amazing happens. Everything freezes and Cotter finds himself facing Dianect. He gives Cotter a choice. He can exchange himself for Adri, as Dianek needs him as a general in his army. Cotter is torn, as he has vowed to sacrifice himself to help others, but at the same time has promised his new bride to return to her and the family. In the end, his vows to his order bind him and he agrees. Then Dianek disappears. Adri is fully healed, and they hear Dianek's voice saying, You've chosen well, General. The test was just to see if he was willing to fulfill his vows. Adri springs up and buries an arrow between the dragon's eyes, killing it. Taking trophies from the dragon, the party bypasses the old capital and returns to the fishing shack of the boatsman, whose silky wife they freed months ago. In disguise, they ask for passage to the island across the sea. He replies that the only thing they could trade for that would be to get his wife back. They find her and after some talking, convince her to rejoin her husband, binding him to wedding vows to Nuada he cannot break. They hold a huge wedding, and then take off with the fishermen. Meanwhile, the tabaxi are hot on the scent of the spellbook and believe it to be an Ubrium Concordia. They charter a sand ship, but when it comes to the sandstorm, they find the city to be overrun by hundreds of undead. They find another spire of the city only slightly guarded, and after dispatching those undead, descend into the depths of the city. After squeezing their way down into the ruined depths, they find what they are looking for, but it is guarded by the Watcher, a being of undeath whose sole purpose is to guard the book. With the ability to instantly kill anyone, the cats are at a stalemate. They do get him to agree to make a copy of the book, and he gives them a list of rare ingredients to gather. It seems their quest continues. Back in the Great Sea, the party is halfway to the island when they are attacked by a party of Swagen. Despite being dumped in the water and with a well-timed fireball from the sorcerer, they vanquish their foes and the giant shark they have as a companion. They limp over to the island and find, to their surprise, someone has beat them there. Neil, the greatest hunter ever, just ask him, has built a palisade of logs to protect his landing from the island's reptilian residents. He fills their ears with tales of creatures big as houses that roam the island, a true prize for a hunter such as himself. He invites a party to join him in the hunt for these great, great beasts, the greatest of which he calls the king. And that is where we stand now. How will the party fare on this tropical island? Can they defeat its inhabitants? If so, can they claim the next phylactery? Speaking of which... Can they find the other phylacteries, as their whereabouts are shrouded in much mystery? For that, we will have to wait for the next episode. We thank you for joining us on this crazy adventure for yet another year, and sticking with us all these past two years, and we look forward to what this next year will bring. We, of course, would like to know what you think. Rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Email us at relicofthepastpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us at Relic of the Past on Twitter and Relic of the Past Podcast on Facebook. 
Articles and artwork are available at poolmedia.podbean.com. And as always, thank you for playing in the world that lives inside my head. <laughs> <laughs>